17 years ago when I decided I wanted to become a psychologist, what convinced me was that every time I had met a mental health professional, I had met someone incredibly open-minded. These were people who seemed so alive and wedded to our common humanity, not just the profession. I didn't want to study something for six plus years if I was going to be surrounded by people subscribed to a narrow worldview or who were too rigidly infatuated by their theories. Speaking to Fadi Hage, a medical doctor turned therapist, reminded me of why this aspect of mental health professionals as a quote-unquote breed is what keeps me so motivated in my community work with its complicated. I get to speak with some of the most interesting and compassionate people out there, all of them with such colorful, diverse backgrounds and takes on what works to alleviate suffering. In this year interview, I had the pleasure of delving into the nuts and bolts of Fadi's compassion-based work and learned how to deal better with my inner critic while incorporating doses of mindfulness practice into my daily life in concrete, playful ways I hadn't thought of before. Enjoy. Hey, Fadi, your background in and of itself could be an entire hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you're, you're, you're not just a therapist. I am a human. You're, you are a human. And I've had a, quite an interesting journey so far, which I'm very grateful for. Okay, I'll try to keep it short and sweet. Originally Lebanese. I grew up in Lebanon. And I moved from Lebanon when I was about 19 to medical school in Europe. And after that, uh, I moved again to Norway, where I started working as a doctor. So my primary background is in medicine. I came to a new country, which was a bit scary. I didn't know the language. I really had never been in Norway before I decided to go there for wow. work. And I had no idea about how the health system worked. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of me. I tend to jump into things. And um, got to Norway, learned a new language, started work, and ended up doing immunology, actually, for okay. a long time. Yeah. So I'm a specialist in immunology. Right. And I was doing a lot of interesting research and working with leukemia and immunodeficiencies. But then when I finished my speciality and I got offered a specialist position, I realized that I really miss people. <laughs> I'm actually a people person, yeah. even though I did grow up with some social anxiety when I was a teenager. But Deep down inside, I really love people. And then, so I decided to take a small sabbatical at the time. I also love to travel. Yeah. And I started traveling to Asia. How many years and back is this? This is about 2015, if I remember okay. right. Okay, yeah. So I went for three months. And when I came back, I realized that I didn't want to work and research because I really like people yeah. and I also realized that I love to travel so when I came back to Norway I decided to take on uh, like a short-term uh, assignments as a family practitioner yeah. 
And I would work for like six months and then I was off to Asia for another six months. <clears throat> and I got hooked on Asia because of, well, for one, yoga and meditation. Yeah. That's when I started learning about mindfulness practices. And when I would go back to Norway to work as a family practitioner, I quickly noticed that there was a lot of people contacting me because they were not feeling mentally good. And that was when I started getting into therapy. And in the beginning, it was a lot of mindfulness-based stress reduction, cognitive therapy, self-compassion, those types of therapies that I would study, go to workshops, and then when people came, I would start to try and help them out. And I soon became the doctor that loved the people that were feeling sad. <laughs> Bring them on. <laughs> and a lot more. <laughs> and a lot more were coming. After that, it was in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I was also working as a GP. Um, there was a lot of people that were not feeling well. Mm. The isolation, you can imagine everything. And then one day I had this, I had a crazy Friday. I still remember that day. The secretary just calls me and she's like, oh, there's this patient. She's having a small infection. It will be quick. I know you're busy schedule, but can you fit her in? I'm like, sure, sure. And this human comes in and immediately when she sits down, I'm like, something's not right over here. So instead of just looking at the blood results and just giving the antibiotics, I started asking a few questions and it turned out into about 40 or 50 minute heart opening session where she just, we both were very emotional, crying, letting go and a lot of wow. stuff coming up. And then went back into my day. And then at the end of the day, when I was walking out, the secretary was like, oh, you have a gift from a patient. And she had bought me a flower with a small card that said, you should be a psychiatrist. Really? That's so yeah. beautiful. So when I went home and I'm like, hmm, yeah, I really enjoy working in psychiatry. So I got online and I started uh, searching for just, it was Friday afternoon. I'm like, oh, let's look. And I found a position in a city that I have a lot of friends in. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling a bit lonely. I was in a different city at the time, not knowing anyone. And with the lockdown, it wasn't very easy to socialize. And then I saw that there was this position. Still in Norway? Opening and it's like, still in Norway. <clears throat> So I ended up just writing a very short uh, application, sending it in, and then Monday morning I get a call, and they're like, would you be interested in an interview? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so within a few weeks, I left my job as a family practitioner and moved again and started working in emergency psychiatry. Immediately, as soon as I got there, I knew I, or the first week I went to my boss and I'm like, I need to do CBT. Yeah. And they're like, you just got here. I'm like, I know, but this is one thing I want. And they're like, okay. So I immediately 
got enrolled in a two-year cognitive behavioral therapy certification. And uh, yeah, and that's how I became a therapist. Wow. In which ways would you say that your journey to becoming a therapist has informed your approach to therapy? Has it become like more holistic mm. or, you know, how? Yeah. I remember when I was, when I started doing the teacher training as a MBSR and MBCT certification, I remember having a discussion with my supervisor at the time and uh, I needed to run a few of these eight week courses to get certified. And I remember telling my supervisor that I really want to get certified, but the program as it is doesn't really fit into the people that I'm working with at the time. And what certification uh, was that? To become a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I guess life had its own path for me. And instead of following one certain path, I started learning and just whatever circumstance I was in, I would try to customize that. So I was also working in addiction medicine and over there, for example, Gabor Mate's compassionate inquiry. I'm sure you heard yes. about. Yeah. I did a one month training with them and I found that to be a super powerful tool when I was working with addiction. So I started holding these group uh, sessions and just getting to know a lot about the pain of why people get stuck in addiction and customizing according to everyone and what they felt they needed. Can you maybe say a bit to, mm. to, to those who haven't heard of Gabramatze and Compassionate mm. Inquiry, just a few words about mm. that approach? I guess what Gabor says is that... Uh, Behind every addiction, there is pain. And if we don't deal with that pain, there's very little chance that we could manage the addiction. So we need to understand and not only focus on how long have you been using, what kind of drugs, how often, and all that, but to see the whole person and what is the pain that is driving you to use drugs to escape? Well, for me, that was the main thing that stuck with me. And I'm very curious, so I keep learning and, and I keep trying to see what does this person, how can I help this person in the best way possible? I really like that approach because it's the patient or the client that's in the focus over here. I don't try to fit the patient into the yeah. program, but I try to make a program for everyone I work with. And it makes my work very exciting because there's a lot of new things all the time. <laughs> so you have kind of a, also a, like a blank slate approach. You try to kind of... Mm go into each new meeting with uh, with a person mm. yeah. without any 
yeah. expectations as to what the client will bring or well i try to listen to where the client is mm -hmm. and and which part of their journey they are and what do they need at that time and then help them to work towards what they want to achieve and that being said uh, self-compassion is a very integral part of my approach and it's one of the first things that i check uh, how do we respond to ourselves when we're facing difficulties are we critical uh, are we judging ourselves are we comparing ourselves and if that's the case then i find it very important to start there because i don't want people to hurt themselves along the journey and if we're not responding in a compassionate way i think we build in many cases a lot of maybe shame or regret that is not needed when we're already diving on such a difficult path mm. Mm. so you're not in norway anymore so when did you decide to mm. or do you sometimes go back to norway well last year i decided to leave norway and moved to asia now i'm in bali and i do have plans to go back to norway towards the spring summer next year i have a few retreats meditation retreats that i'd like to attend first it's a very good place for me here to grow on a personal level and since i left the hospital last year uh, i'm taking some time to really work on my approach and how it is that i want to help people okay so was it was mm. it a conscious decision to to leave the hospital to become a full-time private mm. practitioner and yeah. find your niche so to speak yeah i'm struggling a lot with how the health system works mm. as a doctor i was often prioritized to medications and there wasn't enough time personally that i felt with people to talk to get to know i decided that i'd like to take a year off and start my own practice and develop the skills that i want and see how that goes before i go back if i decide to go back hmm. nice hmm. and how is the therapy community in in bali actually i've met a few therapists that work online like me yeah. otherwise over here it's uh, It's a lot of yoga, yeah. it's a lot of meditations, uh, there's a lot of breath work. Uh, there are a lot of very useful modalities over here that are very different from modern medicine. I find that very interesting. It's, uh, it's a very rich environment that searches creativity. I was talking in the other day with Uh, someone that works with sound healing yeah. they use crystal balls they use Tibetan balls to work on a vibrational level mm. on an energetic level and 
I found that very interesting. And we got into a conversation about how singing could be very sort of poetic. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to see if there's some, something more to discover in that, but it's a very, not a lot of therapists as in cognitive therapists or psychotherapists over here. That's not what people here often come for. And it's a bit unfortunate because a lot of the people I meet here have tried modern medicine or psychotherapy and didn't feel it helped them. Mm. Hmm. So are you somewhat of an, are, are you a unicorn over there? Like, are you a, are you a rarity? Um, yeah, there's not so many people that work in the same line that I do. That's true. Hmm. That being said, a lot of my work though is online. Yeah. A lot of my clients are in Europe or the Middle East where I come from. Yeah. Hmm. And do you incorporate different inspirations that you've gotten from your environment in Bali? Do, yeah. do you work with, you know, like energy fields or, or do, do you do a lot of mindfulness meditation, like in your sessions or, yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness and yoga are quite uh, integral uh, with a lot of my clients, not all of them. I think it was Andrew Burnett that said the longest journey you ever take is that 18 inch from your head to your heart. And for me, yoga was the way that really helped me connect with my body. Um, I was, I grew up in a society that focused a lot on reason and logic and thinking was the only or the best way to solve any problem. And along the past, I've realized that thinking is only one way. Our mind is one tool that we have. And it's very important to balance that with a good connection to our bodies. Yeah. That connection for me came first through yoga and later on a meditation. And now recently I've been diving into breath work as well and finding it to be a very useful modality to release a lot of stress or tension that we have caught up yeah. in our bodies. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's completely fine, obviously, if, if you don't want to speak about this, but you you mentioned that you worked with a lot of people from the Middle East and mm. with the complete mm. crisis and the war going on. Does that focus your work in, in, in specific ways? Like, does it make the need for you know, compassion-based interventions mm. bigger? Or, yeah, does it change things in any way for you as a practitioner? Mm. It's a tough yeah. one. Yeah, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed by that. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess it's uh, on a personal level when the first, when the crisis started, I was feeling very overwhelmed. 
to the point where I was immobilized. And I had to cut down a lot and focus on my own self. Yeah. And I found that uh, meditation was sometimes helpful, but sometimes I needed to let out anger and especially aggression. I find that anger is a very helpful emotion, but aggression is is not on a personal level. And when that, uh, when the crisis started, there was a lot of aggression that was coming up inside me. So when I tried to do yoga, that was not helping. Mm. And I ended up going to Thai boxing. Mm-hmm. How was that? <laughs> uh, that was very helpful. That was uh, that was what I needed at the time. I needed to let go because I was in a stage where there was a lot of aggression that wasn't allowing me to sit with the anger. And so I find that important to know one mindfulness is the right answer and one it's not on. There's a technique called mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. And it's uh, it's by Eric Garland. And he talks a lot about uh, the healthy way to use mindfulness in trauma management. He talks a lot about that sometimes that mindfulness instructors, if our client is going through a trauma, it's not right to tell them, just sit no. with it. That's not the right advice to give. And that could reactivate and cause some re-traumatization. Yeah. And I think that was a bit of what was happening in me. And so I'm very grateful for those learnings. And I managed to customize what I needed until I was ready to sit with the anger and say that uh, it was anger because I have a need for peace in the world. I have a need for safety for everyone. Uh, And that was where the anger was coming from. Yeah. And so eventually I got to that understanding. But in the beginning, uh, I would say that uh, as a mindfulness teacher, it's also very important that we are aware of when mindfulness is appropriate or how can we adjust it accordingly to not cause any harm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Are people reaching out specifically to you because of your background as a as a Lebanese practitioner, like someone mm-hmm. as someone who has a common Frame of reference? Yeah. A lot of my clients are uh, either Arabic uh, origins or living in the Arab world. Um, and I guess, well, of course, with the understanding of the culture, the language, the history, yeah. it makes it very easy for us to connect. So, yeah. yeah. Currently, there's only one person in Palestine that I'm supporting. And I think that has a lot to do with 
maybe it's not the yeah. time for them with everything that's going on. Uh, but from Lebanon, I'm noticing that uh, there are a few more reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When you're when you're in the crossfire, that's not when you you know reach out for psychological no. support. Yeah. Hopefully later on I'll be able to support. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. I'm also, hmm. you know, because it is something I've only dabbled with. Everything to do with compassion-based therapies hmm. and interventions, and hmm. since this seems to have been quite a big part of your journey to becoming the therapist you are today, would you care to maybe? Tell me about like your most important learnings or if mm. if there are certain philosophies mm. that especially influences mm. your approach to therapy. I guess a lot of my learnings come from mindful self-compassion, which was developed by Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. And over there... There are three main pillars in mindful self-compassion, uh, mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. For example, when we talk about mindfulness, we try to compare that to over-identification. Let's say that something happened and I feel bad. A usual line of thinking in people that suffer from depression or anxiety is that it goes from, I feel bad, I don't want to have this feeling, and then to I am bad. Or for example, I failed to I'm a failure. So it goes into that over-identification with that one single event becomes a generalization. And this is where mindfulness is very integral because it's it's not about resisting, avoiding, or exaggerating our moment to moment. It's about taking it for the way it is. So instead of over-identification and judging ourselves from a single event, mm. uh, we just say that I failed this time. And that's how it is. Mm. The second one, the common humanity, we can compare that to the other extreme, which is the isolation. And one thing that often comes up when we have a very harsh inner critic is that we tend to isolate ourselves. Yeah. And so we tend to think that everyone else is fine. I'm the only one that is a failure. And would What's important here is to remember that to err is human, as we say, that failure is part of being human and that everyone I know makes mistakes. So that moves me or us from isolating ourselves to connecting to our common humanity. The third main thing about mindful self-compassion is self-kindness. And here it's compared to our self-judgment. Mm -hmm. So the self-kindness is not just... Uh, trying to end that inner criticism that we have. It's also about actively opening up our heart to the suffering that we're facing 
And for example, responding in the same way that I would to a friend. Mm. It's about investigating together how we are responding to things. And are we drawing on conclusions? So I ask people, for example, to journal a lot after they have difficult experiences. From the journaling, I usually get an indication about is this person more connected to his thoughts, to his feelings, or to the body? And then from there, we start on our journey. Okay, if it's the thoughts, how are the quality of the thoughts? Are they very critical? And then we start looking into that. And then, because usually the inner critic develops at an early stage as a way to cope with the difficulty that we face. And with time, it just becomes our default answer to a lot of stuff. So I ask people about the small things that happen in their day and we start looking, okay, yes, I am evaluating or I am just uh, being very critical. And then we start introducing, okay, are there other ways that we can respond to the situation? And how can we introduce kindness and curiosity into our approach? Yeah. And to really get into the nitty gritty, would you even give your clients self-compassionate homework? <laughs> uh, the short answer, yes. I often talk about the negativity bias and how we just focus on that one thing that went mm -hmm. wrong in our whole day and really see that under the microscope. And so I often ask people about, okay, but what about the rest of your day? What are the things about yourself that you're proud of? How would your friends describe you? Often the key is how would you react if it was a friend? That's usually the one that helps people to become a bit kinder yeah. to themselves. Hmm. Yeah. Can it then become like a muscle of self-compassion? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the aha moments I get in our sessions is when I hear a client reflecting over a mistake they did. And instead of responding with uh, self-criticism, they're like, I was curious about this. I made a mistake. And then I told myself, it's okay to make mistakes. <laughs> so it really does grow. Then they start applying it into different areas of their field. And that's when I know that, wow that person has grown a lot. So it is definitely a, a muscle that we can grow. Hmm. I was told that you had started this Instagram project, am I right? Hmm. Called Daily Doses. Hmm. And that it was initiated as an attempt to share different hmm. helpful daily practices. Can you describe mm. some of these practices and what this project yeah. is about? Yeah, this project is part of a bigger offering that I'm calling Mindful Living. Mm. And one thing I've learned in my life is start small. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so after spending a bit of time on the bigger projects, <laughs> I realized that uh, mindful living is something that I find helps people to come out of spiraling quicker. 
So if somebody has a recurrent depression or anxiety in specific situations, it's about what are the practices that you need to recharge your batteries. Daily doses was the first step in that project, which is about what are small acts that we can do in our everyday to recharge our uh, psychological well-being. These are these are practices that we can incorporate into our daily life without needing, for example, half an hour to sit for meditation or without really disturbing because a lot of us were living very stressful lives. And so I try to find those moments in our day when we can practice. And this, for example, can be uh, when I'm standing in line waiting to get a coffee. I remember, for example, to uh, feel the sensations of my feet on the ground. And this is a very good way to stop the inner chatter and to just ground and balance myself. Um, another practice is the first conversation I have with someone in the day, I try to only listen. Oh, I love this. Because usually there is a lot of there's a lot of autopilot whenever we have conversations with just random people that we meet, like the person we buy our coffee from, our the person we buy stuff from, or just random people that we don't really say anything, but we just say, hello, how are you? How are you doing today? Or good morning. And just that automatic talk. Yeah. So it's become a routine this doesn't work with our partner or someone that we live with. It's more about people that we just meet randomly on the street. And instead of directly going into that automatic conversation, I listen. And I notice that often they share something valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of just the usual. Another practice is I try to... Notice when I'm brushing my teeth, <laughs> how much pressure I'm applying. Because in the morning, uh, we want to get ready for the day. And usually by the time our eyes open, we're starting to plan what we need to do, what do we have on our to-do list for the day. And that's very useful, but it's also important to ground ourselves. So for me, I can plan as much as I want when I get in front of the mirror and I'm brushing my teeth. I, Whenever my mind is very active, I notice that I apply a lot of pressure on my right. teeth with the toothbrush. So that's become a practice where, oh yeah, okay, I'm thinking a lot now, maybe it's time to balance. Yeah, It's these kind of things that I introduce into my daily life to really take me off that autopilot to ground yeah. me and to strengthen the connection that I have with random people around. That's beautiful. Mm. I'm going to go visit that page immediately. What what do I need to search for on Instagram? It's Therapy by Fadi. Yes. Well, I'd like for our talk to end on this lovely concrete i'd even go so far as to say playful note <laughs> mm. 
and just say thank you so much, Fadi, for wanting to speak with me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, and I enjoyed it as well. I'll be back in two weeks where I'm speaking with Garima Narwani, a South Asian counseling psychologist based in Amsterdam who has the third culture kids experience in common with the clients she primarily works with. We'll be exploring the expat experience and much more. As always, the music is brought to you by music therapist Katria Rula, and I'm your host, Johannes Vincent.